there will be no musical offering, so we'll go ahead and look at the passage this morning, which is not Romans 4. This could be a different passage. Um, this is going to be from Genesis, actually, beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 27, and we'll begin in verse 30. But before we look at the passage, or rather before we read it, um, I want to kind of bring to mind, I think, what is going on in this passage um, from an older movie that many of y'all have maybe seen called Chariots of Fire from 1981, and that's the uh, depiction or the the retelling of a, a real story between these track athletes from Great Britain competing in the Olympics. And it really compares these two men. One is Harold Abrahams and Eric Waddell. And there's, if you could sum up the movie in, in two quotes I found, I think these this goes uh, far in, in saying what's going on in the hearts of these men. And so first, this is a quote taken from the movie um, by the first runner, Harold Abrahams. He says, In speaking about um, running the race or looking forward to running the Olympics, he says, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And so he's, he's looking to the ability to race and the competition in the Olympics as the, the means to justify the reason why he, why he lives, the, to justify his existence. Okay, that's one perspective. This is in comparison to kind of the hero, if you will, of this of the movie, Eric Waddell, who says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's a wholly different wholly completely different perspective. The one is seeking God's favor through effort, hoping to justify his existence. And the second is one who lives as already having God's favor. He already has God's blessing. He has no reason to justify himself because he has been justified. And I think that illustrates for us the fact that we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot merit God's favor. Or another way of saying is we cannot earn his blessing. And this is, you know, this is taken from Chariots of Fire, a movie, but this is a story told a thousand times over in our very lives, in the lives of everyone we know. That we cannot earn God's favor, and yet we desperately desire it. Henry David Thoreau, and I guess he was a transcendentalist maybe back in the 19th century, said of men that they are all, there, there are many men living lives of quiet desperation. Men live lives of quiet desperation, men and women, mankind. And the question is, what are they, what are they living desperate lives for? What are they desperate for? And I would argue it is, God's blessing. So have that in mind as I read the passage this morning, and then we'll look at it more deeply. So beginning in verse 30 of Genesis chapter 27. Excuse me. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out, with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, 
and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older but the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and then he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring, bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Let's pray. Lord, you are a gracious God, and we are told in your word that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we ask, Lord, that as we hear your word preached this morning, as we've heard it read, as we meditate it on, in our hearts and throughout the week, Lord, that would be what sustains us, and that we would look to you for life itself. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so the, the, the main point from this, this passage, and, and, and we're kind of picking up in the middle of chapter 27, um, but many of you know the story of Esau and Jacob, and we'll touch on some of the context in a little bit. But the main point is that Esau is unable to attain blessing or to merit the blessing from his father, Isaac. And what this, what this means for us and what this shows is that in God's economy, in, in the scriptures, the way that blessing is attained is not from merit, but from grace. In God's economy, blessing comes from grace. As I mentioned in the introduction, there is a desperation in man to have God's blessing. He desires, men and women of all ages and from every generation, desire to be blessed by God. And we see this later with Jacob, actually, as, as, as this passage is kind of highlighted Esau. We see this later with Jacob after he returns from his time in Haran with his, with his uncle Laban after he receives these two wives. We see in, in chapter 32 of Genesis that Jacob wrestles with a man all day and into the night and to the break of day even. And there's this 
this man, this, which many say is a theophany, is a, an appearance of God wrestling with Jacob. And the scriptures tell us about this interchange or this, this exchange that the man said to Jacob, let me go for the day is broken. And Jacob's reply is, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so we have this desperate desire to be blessed by God. And we see the inverse of this desperation with Esau. Because he's lost the blessing from his father. Or it's been it's really been stolen out from under him by his younger brother Jacob. And so the way we'll, we'll break down this text is first by looking at how Esau has lost his hope. And how that leads to a kind of worldly despair. So there's Esau losing his hope. Esau has then led to this kind of worldly despair. And then finally, I think this sets up for us God's covenant of grace. God has made, or established rather, a relationship with his people. This is explained to us in all of scripture. He's established a relationship with his people called the covenant. And it's a covenant that is marked by grace, not merit, nothing we can do. It is marked by God's grace. But before we look at this, I want to just make an introductory note. In the first part of this passage, after Esau finds out about the deception of his brother, there is this, uh, we're, we're, uh, we recollect in some senses this trajectory that's happened. Going back to when Esau and Jacob were born, Jacob in this passage has officially supplanted or taken over his brother. If you remember when they were born, when Esau comes out of the womb, Jacob has him by the heel. Because he is going to be the one who supplants him, who takes over him. And so he takes over, he, he, he's taken him by the heel at his birth. And then in some previous verses, previous chapters, he takes away the birthright. Esau pretty much sells the birthright for a cup or a bowl of soup, a bowl of lentil soup. And then here finally, Esau, Esau or rather Jacob has taken the blessing from Esau. He has supplanted him. He has taken it from him. He has taken his place. Esau says in Genesis 27 36, is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob, his name meaning the one who supplants, the one who takes, the one who deceived or deceives. And so we see in verse 30 when Jacob has scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, the very beginning of our passage, after receiving the blessing, Esau then shows up just in the nick of time or rather just missing his time. And I think what this illustrates for us is the nature of Jacob's supplanting of Esau. To stick with, as I mentioned, Chariots of Fire, to stick with kind of the running illustrations, um, I came across this on a YouTube or a video uh, recently, but the Atlanta Braves have a seventh inning kind of show thing they do. I don't know if they do it every game, but they, they I guess they've done it a lot. Um, called uh, Beat the Freeze. And what they do during this time is they have this this guy who used to be a track athlete dress up as this this comic book character, the Freeze, and they give a, a participant from the crowd a, a, a pretty generous uh, starting out point to try to beat this guy. And if you go and look this up on YouTube, you see that almost every single time the Beat the Freeze guy always catches up and wins. Almost comically at some points. One, one instance is when the man had a sizable lead. He was given this generous lead, but then he has a sizable lead, and he's about to win. He should win. And he trips at the very last second and falls, and the Beat the Freeze guy jumps over him and still wins. And I think what this 
one reason I bring that up is because it illustrates that in the very nick of time here with Jacob and Esau, God's ways will always win. Even when it seems like they won't, at the very last second, God's ways always wins. His, his purposes for humankind, for man, for his people are always accomplished, even at the last second sometimes. And so we see this play out in this passage. But first let's look at how Esau, as I said earlier, we'll look at first Esau has lost hope. Esau has lost hope in finding out this deception. John Calvin uh, comments on this passage and makes note here that Esau in these first three verses is actually the son who obeyed. We often think of Jacob and Esau and, and Esau as the bad son and Jacob as the good son. Maybe wrongfully so we think of that, but uh, we often think that Jacob was the good son. He obeyed and Esau didn't. But here John Calvin remarks that he Esau is actually the one who obeyed. He's the one who, who has obeyed the command of his father. He has gone out to the field and killed the game as his father asked him to do. He was the one who prepared it as his father asked him to do. He prepared the meal. And then third, in verse 32, when his father asked, who are you? His son, Esau, answers truthfully. And this is in comparison to Jacob, which I didn't read this, but just in the previous verses we see that Jacob does the exact opposite. He's outwardly um, the sinner here in comparison to Esau. Jacob, in comparison, did not hunt for game. But his mother goes and gets uh, uh, the young goats that the family owned. And he did not prepare the meal, but his mother actually was the one to prepare the meal to take to his father before he deceived his father. And then finally, his presence in front of his father was a lie. His father asked uh, Jacob, the exact same question, and Jacob answers falsely that he is Esau, when really he is Jacob. And yet it is in this moment when Esau, being outwardly being obedient and good, and his other son, Jacob, being deceitful, it's in this moment that he has lost the blessing. This blessing being the passing on of the covenant promises of God, that God would be God to that man. He would be God to Jacob and to his offspring, that he would bless him. And it all seems, if you, if you look at this kind of in context, it all seems upside down. Why is it that Jacob is the one who receives the blessing and not Esau? Esau shows himself in this instance to be the obedient one, to be the good one, while Jacob is the liar. Jacob is the one who gets the blessing through deception. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we, if we just look at this, not in light of Scripture, but maybe just this instance, we think, that's not fair. It may even make you mad. Why is it that Esau did not get it? He was the good one. Jacob got it by lying. How could I ever be good enough for God? And I think that's the point. We can't be good enough. You can't earn God's blessing. You can't merit God's favor. It is to highlight, rather, that God elects those whom he has chosen to set his love upon. It is about God. It is not about man. As Christians, we are constantly coming back to this fact of grace in the Christian life. We are at war with our sin because we want to think that we have done something to be in the faith. We want to think that we have done something to earn our salvation. 
At least just a little something, something that we can hang our hat on. As Christians, we often, maybe not always, but often we behave better than the world around us. And the temptation is then to think that we are better than the world around us. We are obedient while our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, are wicked. We come to church, we pray, and we pray together, we give of our money, sacrificially even, we help those in need, and and look at my neighbor, he just does what he wants. And that seed can grow into a tall weed that speaks of our self-righteousness. And this passage reminds us that we are at our core wicked sinners saved by grace. And that is the good news. And hopefully there are evidences of grace in our lives where we are beginning to obey God and loving God and loving our neighbor. But that too is by God's grace. Not something we achieve by merit. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is favor that is unmerited. It's actually the opposite of what we deserve. It's the opposite of what we merit. And that is the Christian life. It is one that is lived by God's grace. We have, we have God's blessing. But it's not from anything that we've done. It is purely because of God's loving decision to bless us of his free will. The more we understand this, we will live the Christian life in, in, in wonder and in awe. I cannot answer why God chose me. It is utter and complete humility and yet a love and compassion for others because we are no better off. We are all adopted children. There's only one natural born child of God, which is Jesus. We are all adopted, brought into the family of God by his grace. So Esau has lost hope because he realizes he can't merit the blessing. And this leads to a kind of despair and this, you, you could say this is a natural response. This is in verses 33 through 41. Esau kind of falls into this despair. And in the New Testament, we're actually given a commentary on this very passage of what is going on in Esau's heart and what's happening in the context. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17, the passage says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. After finding out that Isaac, his father, has blessed Jacob instead of him, he cries out, the scripture tells us, with an exceedingly uh, exceedingly great and bitter cry. It has led, this, this loss of hope has led to this despair. And he, in his despair even, he begs of his father still to bless him. Desperately crying for this. He says, bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And actually, if you picked up on this, he repeats that same phrase. It's a double, uh, it's a double weeping and ble- uh, desperation for his father's blessing. And then and after it's repeated in verse 38, we are told that he lifted up his voice and wept. Kind of this final statement on what has happened. His final statement on his despair. And there's a, there's a lesson here for us in what repentance is not. It is a, what Esau is experiencing is a worldly despair. 
Not a godly despair, a worldly despair. Esau's weeping over his sin. It actually, it may be greater than what we've ever wept over our own sin. And yet it does not lead to repentance. It's simply despair by itself. Because we see ultimately Esau does not repent. He does not confess his sin in hope of forgiveness, but rather continues to shift blame. Look at verse 36, which in the middle of these two instances of Esau's weeping in the text really shows his heart. It really shows that he in his heart has a heart of blame and anger. In verse 36 he says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And we think back, in in that instance, maybe we we think that Esau is justified in in, uh, complaining of the injustice done to him. But if you go back, it was Esau that actually traded his birthright. It wasn't stolen from him. He sold it. And we're even told in Scripture that he he despaired of his birthright. And now he's trying to claim it as his own. And so Esau, in his pride, coupled with the despair that's going on, is unwilling to own his sin. He's unwilling to own his sin. Yes, Jacob has lied and cheated him. Esau has been sinned against. There has been injustice, you could say, in some aspect. But there is no ownership of his sin. Esau's cry is rather one of injustice. And frankly, it's also entitlement. And those two things couple together. He says that Jacob took away my birthright and my blessing. Do you hear the, the, the entitlement in those statements? He deserved them. And this is a deadly combination for a soul. Where they only see injustice done to them on one hand. And then on the other hand, they are entitled to blessing. That is the opposite of repentance and faith. In the Hebrews passage I read from earlier in verse 15, when the author says, see to it that no one obtains the, or see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, it follows up that by saying that no root of bitterness spring up. That is the sure way to not obtain the grace of God. Not that we merit it. But if you allow a root of bitterness to live in your hearts, there's no space for God's grace. To only see the injustices done to you. And then in turn to feel entitled by your innocence to God's blessing. That is the root of bitterness. We see this in our own day in movements like critical race theory. If you've heard of the Black Lives Matter movement, this this is in essence what they're about. Injustice done to people. And then entitlement to what people groups deserve is the shifting of blame from themselves to another. And it plays out in our hearts as well. When we suffer wrong from others, we get angry and indignant at the injustice that we have suffered. For example, watch your hearts the next time you drive around. It may not be that busy around here. It's getting busier probably. But you see people cutting you off or you see somebody driving too fast or too slow. And in your heart you become Angry at them. You sense the injustice being done to you in that small little way. And what Esau does here in seeking after blessing is the opposite of repentance. It is a worldly despair, not a godly despair, a worldly despair. And the remedy for us is biblical repentance. To have a true sense of our sin. Not to be concerned with what 
what others have done to us, but to own our sin in the matter. We have been sinned against in many ways, but we have to first own the sin which we have committed and how we have ultimately sinned against God, not our neighbor. But sin is ultimately a sin and affront against God and his holiness. And instead of entitlement, we are to look to Jesus by faith, knowing that we do not deserve God's blessing, but we are humble recipients of it. It is the opposite of blame shifting and entitlement. We are the ones to blame. We are the ones who have committed the injustice. And then in turn, we are entitled to nothing. We do not deserve anything good from God, and yet in his good pleasure, he has chosen in the covenant of grace to bless us. And this is what the covenant, this relationship that God has established with us, is all about. It is all about God's grace, his promises of grace to his people. And so let's finally see how this passage ends in verses 42 to 46. Rebecca sends Jacob away, and it, it speaks of the covenant of grace, how God is has been at work since the beginning of time and is carrying a people throughout time and history to be his people, and he will be their God. Jacob's life here is threatened by this root of bitterness that's grown up in the life of Esau. This haunting line, if you picked up on this as I read it, uh, this haunting line here that your brother, this is uh, Rebecca saying to her son Jacob, your brother Esau comforts, comforts himself or consoles himself about you by planning to kill you. I mean, that's a haunting line. I would, if someone was, was comforting themselves by their plans to kill me, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. This is what gives this man, Esau, comfort, knowing how he was going to kill his brother. Jacob is now, by receiving the blessing, he is the possessor of the covenant promises. And it is through him that the people of God will come. And yet already, before he's married, before he has children, his life is seriously threatened. If he dies, where do, where do the covenant promises go? Where does the covenant of grace go? And so there's this immediate threat on the people of God already before, in a worldly sense, these things are, are to be passed on. So Rebecca has sent Jacob away in order to preserve his life as the covenant possessor at this moment, as the patriarch. And then the chapter ends with Rebecca speaking to Isaac saying, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of them, marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life to be? That seems such like a, seems like a random statement by Rebecca. And it may be that Rebecca's playing coverage for her, deci- her decision to, to, to uh, send Jacob away, but she does, she does despair of what could come if another marriage happens between one of her sons and the women of the land. If you go back, just uh, uh, maybe this was the last chapter, Esau had taken two Hittite women to be his wives in the previous cha- chapter, and partly because if if Jacob were to take another Hittite woman, this would be a mixing of the covenant people with the non-covenant people. And so it would be going against the promises of God. And so not only is she preserving his life, she's also preserving the covenant promises. That this, the people will be the, the people that God has called out. And so this is really a retelling even of the story of Abraham getting a wife for Isaac. If you, if you know this part of Genesis, he Abraham made his servant go back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac, the generation before. 
And so the same is true here of Jacob. And also we see that in some ways the wife would come through Laban. Just as Laban is the brother of Rebekah and served as kind of the head of the household when the when the wife was chosen for Isaac, it's the same here, that Laban will play this kind of patriarch or this, the head of the household. And these, these elements of the story that are, that are parallel or mirroring the two shows how God is working in successive generations to cultivate and to keep his covenant with his people. And the point is here to highlight that this continued line of the covenant people is something that God providentially keeps for his people. He has chosen a people for himself. And so we see here that Rebekah has covered for Jacob from his brother, one whose sole desire in life is to kill him. And we actually, this is, this is another retelling of a Genesis story. If you remember the first two brothers, Cain and Abel, where the older brother, out of envy and jealousy, this, this root of bitterness, once again, had grown in his heart, where, what does he do? He kills his younger brother, Abel. And here, instead of that happening, we have the younger brother being saved. He is kept from that murder. He's kept from being killed by his older brother in order that the covenant of grace will continue. And this goes back even further if we trace it back to Genesis 3.15, which is the first, many theologians say, is the first utterance of the gospel where we are told there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And this all comes to a, a culmination, as if you will, in Jesus Christ, who ultimately conquered his and our enemies of sin and death and the devil on the cross when his heel, as it were, were bru- was bruised. So instead of suffering the wrath of our enemies, we have been delivered as the covenant people. And we receive this grace by faith. We have been saved, and as we read earlier in Ephesians 2, this is by grace. It is not our undoing. It is purely by the grace of God that we are in the covenant through faith. And just as Jacob did not deserve to receive the blessings of the covenant, we do not deserve, but we are unworthy, rather. We are unworthy recipients of God's grace, and yet we are still recipients. And so we stand in awe of God's electing love, of his grace. We stand in humility, knowing that all of the Christian life is one of grace. Let's pray. Or we often don't know how to think of your grace. We, we think it's um, extravagant. We think that it is too much, it's too good to be true even. That we, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we are desperate to be blessed by you. And so Lord, we ask that as we proceed and leave from this sanctuary where we have heard of your grace, we would live by grace, growing in it, and this in turn would produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be joyful of this great salvation that has been won for us, nothing that we have done, but purely done for you. We would be loving because first you loved us. We'd be faithful to the promises that you have given us, or we would be gracious with one another, and Lord, we'd be self-controlled, this fruit being produced in us by grace. Lord, you are a good God, a God of mercy and kindness, and yet you remain holy and just. 
Lord, may we live for you in all things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.